Prepare your ears for a Waffle Butt Media podcast. Tonight, the war on drugs. A total waste of taxpayer money that did nothing more than fill up American prisons and create a legal form of slavery? Or just one of Tricky Dick Nixon's famous practical jokes that simply got out of hand? The answer probably won't shock you. Find out tonight, America, on America the Podcast. Pass that duchy to the left-hand side, Timmy boy. Back. Hello, America. It's America, the podcast. So, what's the verdict? I mean, does he or does he not? Oh, yes, he does indeed eat poop. Ted Cruz eats his own poop. He has to do it twice a day for some quote-unquote condition that he has. I don't know. He even has a cookbook that he made out of construction paper, but he's trying to sell it. I just, I can't imagine who would want to, who would want to buy a poop cookbook. But, uh, yeah, to answer the first question, yeah, the healthcare bill, or whatever they wanted to call that thing, didn't pass. Uh, Washington was fun, and yeah, Ted Cruz eats poop. So, uh, I guess we should do the show, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. We're rolling anyway, so you can go ahead. Oh, rolling. Well, fine. Hello, America! It's me, the Bastard, and welcome to episode 8 of America with me! Can you guess it? Yes, the Bastard! Now, we are on, uh, our last few episodes, two more after this one, then it's off to fight the war on Christmas. But that war can wait. No matter what the decorations department at Target says. I mean, they're putting out the snowmen in September this year. Slow your roll, Target. No. Today we discuss a different war. A shadow war. And no, it's not the war with Obama's deep state, or Dick Cheney's deep state, or George Clooney's deep state, or even the island of robot soldiers controlled by Elon Musk. No, this is a war on what I assume most of my listeners are on. Drugs. But specifically today, we will be touching on marijuana. Or dabbing on it, or waxing it, or vaping it, or whatever the hell you kids do these days. Do you sample the Mary Jane, Timothy? I do not. Unfortunately, it's illegal in Texas. But we're in Austin. I, I bet you just can't find it. I'll talk to my guy. Same guy that sells to Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton. <laughs> no way those guys smoke weed. Ah, but that's just the thing. I'm not sure if you know this, Timothy, but most politicians are what some might call liars. Did you know that? I, uh... I did not. No. Oh, it's true. Most presidents have even smoked marijuana. Which, from here on out, let's just call it cannabis. I like it better. Marijuana was just some racist slang word that white people made up to scare people out of wanting mara... I mean, cannabis. What do you mean? Well, basically, back in the 20th century, the lumber and oil industries didn't like much that hemp was so cheap and easy to grow and could easily replace the two of them. And, full disclosure, I am no friend to the lumber and the oil... Okay, well, just the lumber. I, I'm no friend of the lumber industry. I was for hemp farms from the beginning, which we'll get to in a moment. Anyways, the rich and powerful people who are not me made up a bunch of racist, scary stories about cannabis that ended up getting it outlawed. And the times, being as racist as they were, made it very easy. Like how? Well, you see, the culture of the South was still pretty bitter about getting their traitorous asses handed to them just a couple decades prior. By backing these laws that turned cannabis users into criminals, they could, and still do to this day, I might add, apply harsh and lengthy prison sentences to anyone they want, not to mention all of the other laws under Jim Crow that carried similar sentences. And then once all of those laws are applied, voila, you have a huge population for prison labor. I.E. legal slavery. My god, those southerners. What a lazy bunch. And that was just the precursor to the war on drugs. So what about the actual war on drugs? Well, once the Equal Rights Act was passed, they needed a new way to oppress people of color. So Nixon, against my recommendation, and that of many scientists who said they could not find that cannabis was as harmful as Reefer Madness said it was, declared a war on drugs. A war that has, at least at the time of this recording, cost the American taxpayers $32 billion for just this year, so far. Money that you could be spending on literally anything else, and that could be going into my pocket. It is one of our nation's biggest wastes and failures, and it should hang heavy over the conscience of our government. Hmm. I'm not gonna lie, man. I really didn't peg you to be on the whole anti-war on drugs side of things. Are you kidding me? 
Timothy, what is my favorite thing in the world? Money. What is my favorite thing in the world? Money, man. Money. I know. It's money. Exactly. Money. I love money more than anything in this world. And because of the war on drugs, all of that money that could be going to a legitimate capitalistic business is going to a bunch of criminals. Some of which actually do want to not be criminals and start a legitimate taxable business. No, Timothy, I was already very pro-cannabis. For instance, before I realized how much of a Nazi Jeff Sessions was, he and I would go smoke a joint of Afghan thunderfuck and northern lights every day at 20 past 4 in his car on the third floor of the congressional garage and listen to Leonard Skinner. <laughs> the only thing about that that surprises me is that Jeff Sessions has a car. Well, it's, um, well, it's more of a shoebox than a car. A baby shoebox, kind of like for the booties, you know? But, uh, shoebox nonetheless. I don't know, congressional people don't get paid that much. Unless you count all the money they get from lobbyists like me, and then, well, okay, fine, got it. Anyways, this subject, the subject of cannabis, is a subject that for some reason beyond my understanding, the mainline Republicans and I have never agreed upon. Which is why I don't think most of the Republicans are actual conservatives. They only seem to want to conserve their ancient and misguided ways of thinking, not what's most important in the world, their money. I just don't get it. I mean, listen, America, I am as old as America, and I will be here until it is gone, and even my ideas evolve over time. Much like how we discussed healthcare on last week's episode, if you are a conservative, it does not make sense for you to be against the legalization of cannabis, unless you are just willfully ignoring the statistics and scientific studies that are available. Listen, there's two things I learned while I was in Colorado. One, don't take candy from strangers that are laced with marijuana, lest you end up in the woods fighting the king of bears. And then two, the medical and recreational cannabis industries are a cash cow and I want in, and so should you. Every state where cannabis is legal either currently has or is on track to having a surplus of money that they are literally having to give back to their citizens because they got too much in tax revenue. It is actually making the places better to live. We can have better schools, parks, highways, you name it. All you have to do is legalize cannabis. But if we continue to allow the war on drugs to go on, more people will needlessly die or killed. Children will be separated from what are most likely good parents. Our prisons will continue to be overpopulated. Crime will still be rampant. And I will still potentially be out of billions of dollars. It's always money with you, isn't it? Well, yes, I'm a Republican. I mean, what are you, new? And as a Republican, my message is simply this. End this failure of a war, legalize weed, get people who are on harder drugs help, because, you know, who's, I mean, whose bright fucking idea was it to put drug addicts in prison versus putting them through detox? I mean, how much sense does that honestly make? I mean, I can't even lobby for that. That's, it's uh, how much, that's how little sense it makes. Ugh. And above all, make me and this country money. Texas, you have so much open land, prime for growing cannabis. And you don't even, you don't even tax your businesses. It's great. I base all of my businesses in Texas. I mean, do I need to have my lobbyist friends come down and fix this? Well, I mean, wait. Was that an option this whole time? Well, sure. But remember, we're lobbyists. At least the ones that I know value money above all else. It's kind of like Atlas Shrugged, except we're not going to abandon all of you. Yet. Right. Huh. America, I love you, and I do not want to see you continue to hurt because of the actions of some phlebitis-stricken, dog-kicking, bejowled criminal president of ours. You need to call your state and federal reps and plead with them to repeal these out-of-date laws. And if you are talking to a Republican rep, remember, appeal to their sense of greed. It might actually work. Works on me. Now, Today's guest is Michael Sizemore of the Brews and the Boys podcast on the Wafflebutt Media Podcast Network, which you can actually catch every Tuesday and live on Sundays after every Cowboys game. He will be giving his first-hand account of how the war on drugs can affect the innocent lives of this country. And with that, I am off to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> That's super random. Why are you going to Portland? More drug research or something? Actually, no! I heard on the fake news that Oregon has quite the Nazi problem, so I thought I'd go up there and, uh... Hunt a few. Right. Oh. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. What? what? No, 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 no. You can't go up there and hunt people. Stop. No, no. You can't hunt people, man. Oh, can't I? No, dude. Oh, relax. It's not like I'm hunting endangered animals again. Which, by the way, I want my panda coat back. I know you took it. Only if you promise to, you know, not hurt or kill anyone. 
Oh, I'm not going to kill them. They're American citizens. I wouldn't do that. I'm just going to hunt them. Make them feel helpless. That sort of a thing. Like they do to everybody else. I would only kill a Nazi if we were at war. Which we aren't. Yet. Okay, but, like, no guns, man. Oh, I'm bringing my tranquilizer gun. I don't want them to get too far. Ugh, whatever. Okay, let the record show I don't approve of any of this. Oh, whatever, Mom. I'm off. Enjoy your interview. I'm going up to Portland, gonna hunt myself some Nazis. Going up to Portland, hunting those Nazis. Uh, I think this is why he told me to buy insurance for him. Uh, whatever. Okay, um, we'll be right back after these messages. It's America, the podcast! Hello, America! This episode is brought to you by Lyft. What is Lyft, you might ask? Well, it's a new ride-sharing app available in the iTunes and the Google stores. What is ride-sharing? Well, it's basically like taxis, but for the future. All you need to do on the consumer end is download the app, put in your info, and right now you can use the offer code AMERICA THE PODCAST for money off of your first ride. Once you have put all of that information into the app, you can request a ride, and then a driver will show up to wherever you are and take you anywhere in America. So, in summary, Download Lyft, put in your information, put in the promo code America the Podcast, drive anywhere you want in America, and listen to America the Podcast every two weeks. And as always, America as hard as you can. Thank you, and now back to the show. So today we are talking about the war on drugs, um, as we just said. And with me today, I have Michael Sizemore from Bruising the Boys um, on Wafflebutt Media. And he is a sports writer for uh, Blogging the Boys. If you are a Cowboys fan, you should definitely check that out. But he is also, I don't want to call him a victim of, but definitely somebody who has seen the major effects of the war on drugs. Uh, say hi, Michael. Hi, how's everybody doing? Good. I'll, I'll, speak, I'll speak on behalf of America. They're doing half good. Half of America. <laughs> Two people in this room. Everyone, I'm asking you how you're doing and asking myself yeah, how I'm exactly. doing. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, and through the war on drugs, like um, you heard at the top of the show, they've it's imprisoned so many different people. So many different people have been affected by it, definitely proportionally or disproportionately towards uh, black folk and people of color in general in this country or, you know, you know, I know at least three people have been to jail for selling just a tiny bit of weed or, mm-hmm. you know, like nothing major. Um, it's just, you know, tiny little things. And then, you know, even when Obama was in office, he pardoned a uh, pardoned a whole bunch of people right before he left. Like one guy who was in jail for, for drug what? crimes. Yeah, drug yeah. crimes, like 50. Uh, he, impar- he pardoned uh, Demarius Thomas, the wide receiver for the Broncos mother who yeah. was in jail for like 20 years or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, um, yeah. yeah and, he uh, just he pardoned her. So. Um, I mean, he's pardoned. He's he's he pardoned a lot of uh, people that were in that he felt were in jail on drug offenses that were, were a little bullshit. harsh. Yeah, I mean, one guy was in there for selling. A, he sold some meth. Um, not a good thing. But he was in jail for fifty years, and it wasn't even like a lot of meth. Meanwhile, like, you can kill someone and go to jail for ten years. Yeah, exactly. Or rape out. somebody and go to jail for you know two months because yeah. you were a good swimmer. In yeah, college, exactly. Whose picture, by the way, if you know who I'm talking about, Brock yeah, Turner, Brock the guy. rapist, is mm-hmm. his picture is now uh, next to the word uh, "rape" in the Book of Law oh, that great. students, all law, law students, study. So his face is right next to the word Good. "rapist." He, so he fuck you, that. Brock Turner. Uh, <laughs> but this is not what this episode is about. So uh, Michael, why don't you? Uh, so years ago, your mom clean now. Clean yeah, but she's been clean. Dad, she's clean been clean whistle. since. Um, she's been clean since I was a. About towards the end of my junior mm. year in high school, she's she's had relapses, is what mm-hmm. it is what it was, and we'll get into we'll start from the beginning and we'll right. get into it. Your dad too, right? Um, um, well, my dad, my he dad was a was, rock and roll musician. Yeah, so. my dad was a rock and roll musician. He's also um, pr- just backstory here. My father's seventy six years old. He turned seventy six um, earlier this month Ooh. on on the seventh. Um, my mother though is only fifty. 50. Yeah, she turned 50 on New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, they're 26 years apart, and when they pretty much when they got together, 
um, my she got to, with my dad because she basically followed my dad as a musician. She was, you know, kind of not a groupie necessarily, but she was really in love with him. And she became she befriended my dad's older kids who are all about her age. Yeah. Uh, and she ran away from home because my my grandmother, uh, Granny, who Tim knows, mm-hmm. who Tim knows and loves, she was an alcoholic um, back in the back in those days. And my mother was fleeing because her her family was falling apart. Her dad, my grandfather, uh, my late grandfather, and my grandmother, they were divorced, um, and she was fleeing. She was fleeing that. So when she flee, uh, fled there, she ended up at my dad's ranch. Um, and my dad's ranch out in Mineral Wells, Texas, um, is where my is where my dad met her. Uh, she was friends with my, like I said, my my half brothers and a half sister. Uh, was really close uh, in age. My half sister was just like a year younger than her. They did track together, and she came over. And my dad, when he returned from touring and stuff like that, he saw my mother and he said, "Why is she here? I know whose daughter that is." Because he went to high school with my grandmother. Right. Yeah. He was older than my grandmother. That's an interesting story. But yeah, yes, he that's... was older than my mom's mother. He was. Uh, a senior when my granny was a freshman and he knew that that was her daughter and he called her and he told her and found, and he kind of found her to be found my grandmother and, and knew that she had drinking problems. Right. And so he, because the ranch, as much as it was as a party place and everybody would come down and see like naked women and stuff like that mm-hmm. at my dad's ranch, it was a hell of a lot better for my mom to be there than being at the home with her own mother, right? Who was really de- Detroit and, yeah. destroying her own body. So my father, getting back to your question, my father, yeah, he dabbled in drugs and recreationally, but mm-hmm. he was never really an, an addict. Um, I mean, he sm- he smokes marijuana like Willie Nelson or whatever, but he's not. And every other person, yeah, and in every the other person. He he's he was never a, an addict. He didn't have that addiction in his mm-hmm. blood, but obviously my mother did. Right, so. right, right, right. What uh, kind of drugs? Um, well, my mother. First off, of course, um, this we're talking about the eighties here. Um, my my raging eighties. Yeah, th- we're talking about even before my mom was was ever in a romantic relationship with my dad, um, which we'll get to how that became. Um, they basically, as I started at the top of the show, they eloped. Uh, they fell in love because they were writing. She was helping him write music. Uh, she was helping my dad write music, and they just kind of fell in love with each other. But my dad, being the being the guy who you know, he left. He left. Uh, he was in the Vietnam War. You know, he was. Mm-hmm. He had done three tours in Vietnam and came back and decided, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do what he was doing, which was studying med- uh, medicine. He decided to just drop it full turkey. I always think to myself, like, my dad could have been a doctor. We could have lived a lot yeah. better. But he decided to just go back to music, which is what his second love was. And um, while he was also finishing up an engineering um, certificate that he had, and he, when he went back to music, that's when they met and all that and meeting her at the ranch and everything. And then just kind of things just kind of fell into place. Um, they, they fell in love, and my dad was really honest with my mother and he said, I need to talk to your father um, because I can't just elope and marry you without their, without their approval. Mm-hmm. And they went over to my great grandmother's house. So that would be my mother's grandparents. My grandmother who her mother was there. Um, she was drunk. Yeah. Um, my grandfather who was divorced from her already, he was there. Um, my great grandfather and my great grandmother were there and my dad asked for, asked to be able to marry her, um, and it was pretty much a resounding no. Um, yeah. My great grandmother didn't want it. You're too old for her. Yeah, way too. Like, uh, you're like you're, you're, time, you're, you old, you're as old as her dad. Like right. that's that's what they would say. And um, my grandmother, who was you know inebriated, intoxicated. Uh, got really nasty and was just really, you know, awful and they couldn't get her to be quiet. And, uh, the only person that really approved of it, I think was my grandfather. And that was just because he respected my dad's military background, Right. but he didn't necessarily approve of it. Nobody approved of it. So they didn't actually end up getting married. They were, they spent most of their majority of their lives, uh, together. Even as I'm growing up, they were in a civil marriage. 
right. and they didn't remember my like father. Didn't, law, right? Remember my yeah. father didn't actually ask my mother to officially marry him until about two, three years ago. Remember when I told oh, you how they yeah. helped my dad yeah, went yeah. and bought a ring and all that stuff. They already had wedding rings that yeah. they had before, but they had lost them and you know and through the many years, my dad actually made my mother officially his wife um, just about four, three or four years ago. Right so on. yeah, that's good. And my mother, you asked what drugs. drugs um, yeah. My mother, she <clears throat> she was into um, uppers, anything like cocaine, speed. Um, she uh, later on in life, she you know found ice uh, meth, which is like a meth um, crystal meth, crystal meth, and something mixed, bad, mixture mixture that. of like ice, which is like I think it's like speed and crystal meth or something like that. Right. It's something mixed together. That reason they call it ice, but. Meth uh, was a thing for her. Um, and now I want you to know, as I was growing up, as we were kids, me and my younger sister, who was born three years after me in 91, my mother didn't have issues when we were right. young. Um, my She wanted kids. And when she got her, she her first child died at stillborn. He right. would have been my older brother. He died stillborn. Um and she wanted to give my father kids. And, of course, my dad was almost against that because he already had kids and he was already old. He was yeah. already in his 40s. You know, mm-hmm. dad was 47 when I was born. Right. Um, yeah. He didn't want to necessarily do that. And but he, you know, he succumbed to her, you know, wanting kids. And he knew I need to give her kids. She's in her 20s. You know, like I need to give her children. Uh-huh. My mother was very good as we were kids. Uh, she would dabble here and there and everything. Um, but she, that, that brings us to the first time my mother ever got arrested. Mm -hmm. Um, my mother stole, she stole mercury from a plant that was nearby that that was, she was, she was going to sell because at the time that was, they made, it was really expensive. And, um, she was, I believe to be, she was ratted out by somebody who was helping her get it. Right. Um, they, we were at a corner store at a convenience store in Mineral Wells, Texas, when she was picked up, uh, it was a really sad scene for me and my little sister because my little sister didn't understand what was going on. I was only about, I think, six years old. So my little sister was about three. That is terrifying. Um, yeah, I know. It was very terrifying. I remember fighting, the pol- like punching and kicking the police officer because I didn't want him to take my mom. I right. thought they were going to just leave me in that parking lot in the back seat of that car. God damn. My dad came and picked us up, and my mother spent uh, 18 months in, in Palo Pinto County Jail um, dealing um, for, for that. She, uh, obvi- she, you know, I think she was supposed to spend up to at least, like, two years, but she got out with good behavior. Uh, she she was like a, um, how would you call it, like a trustee right, while she was right. there. She got out with good behavior and everything. And um, then when that happened, that's when we moved to Houston. And you have to fast forward so many years before the drugs really became a deal. Like I said, marijuana yeah. was part of the fam- part right. of it. There was always marijuana involved, but um, marijuana, I didn't really know that that's what they were smoking. I had no idea when they were out on the patio smoking. Yeah, there, I people, had no idea. I mean, you, as a kid, you um, think it's cigarettes or just something that and, smells icky or something yeah, like that. And I remember the, um, you've met my two childhood friends, Cody and Gilbert. And, and I remember those, their parents were very open with them. My parents were the parents that were like, we're going to be in the dare class, but we're going to be smoking weed at home. And they right. don't even know. <laughs> uh, but I remember my, I remember Cody and Gilbert telling me, my two friends telling me, you don't know that our parents, and they're younger than me. So of right. course I was angry. You don't know that our parents smoke weed together. That's what they do. They get together and they smoke marijuana. It's not that big of a deal, man. And I remember just being, I was such a square that I thought it was a huge deal. Oh, I would have thought the same thing. A huge deal. And I didn't want to be associated with that. And I remember getting so angry about it, uh, so aggressive with my father about it. And I flushed some of his marijuana down the toilet. You remember this story. I I don't remember this story. Okay, well, I flushed... I flushed some of his marijuana down the toilet and he was so angry, but he kind of understood at the same time because he knew he was he was dishonest that he told me, "Okay, all right. My dad had a very stressful job when I was growing up. He stopped music, you know, before I was born. And he started that engineering because he got his certificate and became one of the best engineers in Houston. He helped build 
Uh, he helped build the water pipelines and stuff in, in the Houston area and how the water flows and a stuff. A marijuana like, user can yeah. be smart. Can be what? smart. He's actually, my dad's a pretty much a math genius, yeah. you know. He's very smart. But he understood that he lied to me, that he was dishonest. So he told me, but he was still angry. So he said, you know what? Fine. You don't want me to smoke weed. I won't smoke weed for a month. How's that sound? I won't smoke weed for a month and let you see how it was. Within two weeks, he was on my ass about math homework and stuff that he never was on my ass about before. I said, go and buy that grass. Go and buy it. Yeah. Whatever you have to do, because right now you are not the same dad. You know, go and buy it. My sister knew even before I did they that i was squ- i was the square they kept everything for me you're right um but that's because i wanted to live a, a different life than some of I my mean, family to members. a kid when you've been indoctrinated for so long to think you know this is evil this is you know it's a, it's illegal for one and if you've seen any you know anti-drug commercial like that this is your brain on drugs yeah. lady who's come back since then and done a new commercial just to basically say this is your brain on the war on drugs and yes going crazy with that and like i mean i had friends too like when my friend lucas uh who you know too um, i remember him yeah i found uh, when i was in middle school not middle school was it, uh, high school maybe middle school i found that he smoked weed i started crying it i'm like your heart. you smoke weed what is, oh yeah, god what break, am I, why wasn't i know, there for you until you know like, anything about it it breaks your heart uh, yeah your exactly heart. like and you know, we, even my my own parents like yeah. are pro legalization now, or at least to the mm-hmm. point for at least medical purposes. And in yeah. general, like I mean, oh, it, I mean, I think you here in this here in this room, and mostly in this city, and mostly around the world now, there are more people that are are way more smart smartened up to what marijuana really smartened is. Smartened up. That's that is yeah. <laughs> is that the right smart, term? Yeah, they've been smartened <laughs> up about what marijuana is. Now there are those people out there like the Jeff Sessions of the world that will tell you that. Right marijuana users are bad people and uh, marijuana is a gateway drug look i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna dispel this right now it's not marijuana is not a gateway drug the only reason you would try other drugs is because you want to try other drugs you you don't just smoke marijuana immediately and then you know three weeks later you're addicted to heroin. That's just not how things yeah, work. You don't no. you don't go from marijuana to just oh I'm gonna do cocaine in the bathroom. At, you know that's just not how these things work. And without getting into mostly all of this stuff, yeah, I wouldn't be on this podcast if I hadn't used drugs before. Right. I know what I know what a lot of drugs are like, but I will tell you that it's it's about your personality if you have an addictive trait in your personality that's how you will exactly you will get addicted to certain things there uh, now i do believe that people can be addicted to smoking marijuana but i think that they're not necessarily uh, they're addicted to the way it makes them feel but it definitely isn't something along the lines of like being i think it's less than being addicted to cigarettes or being addicted to alcohol being dependent on alcohol cigarettes are more addictive than uh heroin and even then if you're addicted to the feeling of being high then there is a deeper issue yes there's a deeper issue there mental like with you need mental health help like so being like when people like your mom who you know were which you'll get to more of that in a yeah. second, but we're jailed for the first time for weed or whatever. No, she was jailed what, for the, was the stealing, stealing. Oh, wait, the mercury. mercury yeah, which, yeah. Um, but regardless. She was trying like, to put food on the table for me exactly, and my sister and that's because what, my father was out of work. And that's what most drug dealers out there are trying to do. Like, So people who say, oh, these drug dealers are... They're the scum of the earth. You know, there are cartels that need to go to jail. We know this. Yeah. Like, And that's what we said at the top of the show. Like... Of course. They're like, and, but at the same time, if you, I strongly suggest you check out a new movie coming out called American Made with Tom Cruise. I look, think about what you want with Tom Cruise, but this, it shows exactly what has gone on with the DEA or Sicario is another amazing yeah. movie that shows exactly what the DEA and the cartels did with the war on drugs. They have more or less admitted to the fact that they have been running the drug trade. For years, mm-hmm. and uh, on top of the fact, when the housing crisis hit, drug money might have been the only thing that saved this every country from collapsing. Everyone, including the man who declared the war on drugs, including Ronald Reagan, yes, everyone, no, Nixon, well, Nixon, Nixon, Nixon sorry, um, everybody that's been involved with this war on drugs, it, it was, you know, declared by Nixon and then even carried out by Ronald Reagan later in the eighties. They have every single one of these people that have been involved in the war on drugs has accepted drug money has accepted drug money has has funneled there's been drug money funneled into 
um, in a lot of major cities. Look at Miami. You think you think downtown Miami looks like it does right now? How how amazing you see those you see those screenshots in this TV show Ballers right. with with the Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You think Miami looks like that without cocaine money? Right, Get exactly. Get out of here. That that is what that's what fueled the economy in Miami in the 1980s. Bermuda shorts, bad haircuts, and <laughs> cocaine use, cocaine use and sell. Yeah. Like, that, Watch that's, Narcos. That's, that's, a that's what it was. Example. So jumping back into this story here with my with my mom, it, it you have like I said, you fast forward so many years later. We're living in a, a city called Pasadena, which is a suburb of Houston, Texas. Okay, uh, we were well known for always living. My dad lived well under our means. My dad made more money that we could have afforded a nice house, and a, and but we lived in a trailer park, and of course. I was the one person that was embarrassed about living in a trailer park. I did not want to live in a trailer park. I, I mean, I remember thinking to myself, man, I already like pro, uh, professional wrestling. Why do I have to live in a trailer park too? Can't I get, can't we move into a house? And my dad would always talk about, let's move into a home. Let's move into a house. And my mother, she was tired of being at home. My mm-hmm. mom, she, she said, I want to get a job. So she got a job. She got a job as an inventory specialist with a company named Regis. And back in the day, they would go to the stores and do the, uh, the um, inventory. And sometimes my mother would have to work overnights. My, my mother would have to work overnights because she worked, she worked and, and did inventory. They have to do it when the stores are closed. She really liked that job. She worked with one of her best friends named Rhonda, uh, but her friend Rhonda was getting sick. And um, thankfully, Rhonda's still alive today, but she was getting sick at the time. And my mother at the same time was dealing with the fact that she was pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And when she told my dad, he didn't have the best reaction to that. He basically told her, you're getting an abortion. Right. And my mother grew up in a somewhat religious family, did not believe in, in getting an abortion. And especially since she had already lost a child before, mm-hmm. she really didn't want to get an abortion. Now, she didn't want to have another child, but she didn't want to have an abortion either. And my father was very neglectful, and he didn't go with her when she went and had the abortion. She actually showed up on a day where there were protesters and picketers out there that threw stuff at her that just she cried in her car for like an hour uh, because of what happened that day. And that's where drugs come in. Right. When she came back home, she started she's she was still working with this company, Regis, but she was meeting people. When you have to, like, when you work overnights and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you meet people that are addicted to uppers. Oh, for sure. I've worked overnight in the hotel yeah. world. You meet people that are addicted to Adderall, addicted to, to Vyvanse, yeah. methamphetamines, anything that keeps them awake. Yeah. She started dabbling with cocaine. Mm-hmm. And the first, I was coming home, this is during my freshman year of high school, to give everybody a, a preview here, or just like a reference this was my freshman year of high school, and I remember the day I found out that she was dabbling with cocaine. I came home from from school, and I always took the bus home, and I'm walking home, and um, we were having our bathroom door did not have a door knob on it, uh, our bathroom in our small little trailer that we had, and I looked through, looked through the peep the, the the hole in the door, and I saw my mother chopping up cocaine, mm-hmm. and now if you think about myself. At this age, a freshman in high school who just a few years before that, when I was in seventh grade, found out about the marijuana, a cocaine like this cocaine, like, you know, revealing was super, super crazy for me. That's a hard drug. I broke into the room, the bathroom, because there's no doorknob on there. I just saw her chopping it up and I broke into the bathroom. I was like, what are you doing? She's like, don't you tell your father. Don't you tell your father. She was putting cocaine on top of a joint. She was that's and people do that. People do that. And she was going to she was smoke. She was smoking that. Um, But then you started to see where the things took a turn Mm -hmm. because she was so addicted to doing cocaine that she started to move into ice and, and crystal and stuff 
And that's when you would come home. We would come home, and everything in the living room was gone and in a pawn shop. And my dad would go to the pawn shop and get everything out. So many weeks of my dad just – so many weeks of my father just neglecting this whole situation that he would just go to the pawn shop, buy everything back, and just act like nothing was ever happening. My my mother would spend – sometimes she would spend days away from the house, okay? And my father is not the guy that's going to be cooking dinners and stuff like that. He would come home from work. He would just there, – there was a while there where my mother knew how to play the game where she would be home. She would be home for all these, these, these things like dinner, stuff like that, and then she would go like sneak out later or do whatever, which when you live in a trailer, you're not sneaking out, okay? Mm-hmm. I, there were times where I'd follow her to the drug house that she would go to. There were there were so many different times that and, and this whole thing was tearing me apart my freshman year of high school because my mother was not my mother. She was somebody who cared only about that one thing about her getting high. This is goes back to what we were saying about addiction. Yeah, that's the she only thing an addict cares about. Yeah, she was addicted to getting high that she did not care anymore about how. It, how we felt at home. She thought if I'm home to be able to provide dinner, that's good enough. I'll go get my high later. But I'm like I said, taking stuff out of the house and selling it and everything. And my sister is at this point. My sister is you know about to start. She's in elementary school. She's going to be starting middle school soon. Mm-hmm. She's wondering what's going on here. Why is mom gone for weeks at a time? Like what what's going on? Why is she why haven't we seen her? And when we see her, she's all like sweaty and strung out and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And my dad would continuously, I gotta give him credit. He would stay, he would stay put to help her, but we could tell that things were getting bad and it was getting close to the end of my freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um and as it was getting close to the end, my mother, the last I remember the last week of school, she was not around. And I knew where she was. I told my dad everything. I told him everything that I knew. I, and I told him I knew where she was. So the last day of my freshman year, my dad told me and my sister in the morning, when you go to school today, you need to tell your friends goodbye. And I said, why? What, what are you talking about? I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave my school. I love, I love my friends, all that stuff. You got to tell your friends at this point. Friends of mine like Cody and Gilbert, they've already moved out. They already moved mm-hmm. out of the trailer park. They moved some other places, and we weren't as close. We weren't seeing mm-hmm. each other as much. But my dad, and they all knew I was going through this. They all knew, like, his right. Cody's family felt, like, awful for me. Gilbert's family felt awful for me. <clears throat> they knew that my dad was going through this with my mother and that we were going through this as a family. But my dad said, well, when y'all get off school today, because it's a half day, I'm going to pick you both up from school. And we are going to drive to DFW and you for the summer, Dallas, Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth, you're going to be living with your brothers. I had my oldest brother, Sean, um, that we lived with. Also my brother, Doug and my brother, Kelly, they all lived in the DFW area. And while they decided what they were going to do with us, like when the school started, they said, who is going to, we ended up with my brother, Sean, my oldest brother, who's more, more, most responsible. Mm-hmm. They, we just kind of bounced through the house over the summer. And if we kind of forgot about these things because we were having so much fun with our, our nieces and nephews that were around our age. Cause my dad's kids were, you know, around my mother's age, you know, so these kids, their kids were around our age, but they all knew what we were going through, everything that was happening. Um, my dad on that last day, we, I told you the story where we walked in to, I took my dad to the house where my mother was. We walked in and people are just, like laying there like asleep they almost i knew that there was no heroin there but they almost looked like they they were basically people that were zonked out from they're out of drugs yeah and they're out, out of, of energy serotonin or yeah, whatever out it of is serotonin yeah. out of drugs out of energy people were asleep in that house my dad had his he had a pistol on him oh shit and he was more than willing to use it we went inside we asked the guy i'm not going to name his name but we asked mm. the drug dealer who owned the house we were like where is she he, my dad had his gun mm-hmm. and they just all kind of pointed where she was. She was laying on a bed. She was sweaty. She was not even, she was, she was not even really conscious. She was, she was alive, but she was not, she was asleep. She was sleeping. <clears throat> she had no, she had no recollection of like what had been going on, what, what was happening. Right. 
LaCroix, everyone. Um, but my dad picked her up. We carried her to the, the SUV. My sister and I got into the back seat and we drove to Dallas. My mother wakes up halfway through angry as hell, screaming, yeah. yelling at my dad. Why would you take me away from there? I don't even love you. All this stuff that she could say mm-hmm. to us, to him. My dad just would, and my dad would just say, Melissa, you're, I need you to shut the fuck up right now. We're going to take care of this. Or if you don't get, if you don't get help, you will never see your kids again. Do you understand me? And she started crying, obviously, and, th- mm-hmm. and then all, all of that took place. So when we were in DFW for about a weekend, when my dad told us, y'all are staying, y'all are staying here, mm-hmm. I'm taking your mother back to get help. Uh, she went, to, went through rehab, and she got clean. And then, again, this goes back to my neglectful father, guys. Mm-hmm. She gets clean, and then my dad says, see, all... I want you guys to know that all she wanted, when I found out about the abortion, I found out before we left Houston, I found out about that on a Chris, on a Christmas night um, because I looked for my mother. She wasn't home, and she was at the neighbors watching their, their pets, and she was, she was packing up all of our Christmas presents, and she's crying. And I just asked her, what's wrong, Mom? What's going on? And she told me everything, and she told me why she was on the drugs, like why she was doing everything that, about the abortion and stuff. She told me everything, and she told me that she just wanted my dad to seem like he cared. That's what she was missing. She was missing her husband. She, mm-hmm. she was saying he wasn't a husband anymore. It was like they were in a business relationship, and he would come home, feed everybody, or give the money to the table and stuff, but he just would sit in front of the TV at, like a zombie until he fell asleep. Right. All I mean, that. that's exhausting, though, it having is. to raise the kids and then deal with, it is. you know, and I'm, also working your addicted own to job. drugs and working, working your, your own, own job. job and, Working and three different jobs, basically, exactly. at the same time. And, you know, my mother, fast forward again to us in Dallas, my dad saying that, you know, I'm taking her home, I'm getting her help and getting her clean. He then made the worst decision that he possibly could do. And that was, he said, I'm going to continue working here in Houston because he had to work. He didn't want to leave his job. He was making good money. Mm-hmm. But, Melissa, now that you're clean, I'm going to move you up to DFW and you're going to get an apartment for you and the kids. So the kids will get out of Sean's house, get away from like, so they're not with the brothers all the time. So now they can have their family back. But my mother said, I don't want that. I want you. I want you to move with us. We need to make this move together. You can get a job in Dallas. They have engineers in Dallas. They have jobs open in Dallas, but my dad didn't want to leave his job. He, he didn't want to leave where he was and what he was doing. And that again, he's making that decision that is just not the right decision whenever you have a, a woman that just that just basically got clean from drugs and the re- she pretty much blamed you for the reasoning of her getting addicted in the first place. Right. So at this point in time, I've already finished my sophomore year of high school when my mother moves up. It was a whole year that my dad and the, mm-hmm. my dad and mother were in Houston while my sister and I lived with my brother and went to school. I had finished my sophomore year. I had found lots of new friends at Birdville High School, loved all my friends, and um, was doing theater and getting involved in stuff that I wanted to get involved in, things that I wanted to be in. I didn't want to be in sports and stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do theater. I wanted to do acting. I was having a good time. So there was no way that my dad was going to move me a second time. Right. And, yeah. And, no, and move my sister, move my sister either. But when they sent, when my dad sent my mom up, of course, he sent my mom up with that whole mindset of get the cheapest place y'all can live in, which were these shitty, shitty apartments called Glenview Square that were just awful. Is it in and Halton? No, no. It was in Richland Hills. It was in Richland Hills. Sorry, people. You don't know what but, these are. <laughs> but when you went, when we pulled into this apartment complex, I knew right off the bat this had a bad feeling. I was like, this is not the place we right. need to be. I see people walking around that sketchy, obviously are sketchy, people. jittery, have issues. But my dad just wanted to save some bucks, you know, put us in that house and, and, and then, or put us in that apartment. And within, you know, right around the summertime by that time, like this was my sophomore, my sophomore year just ended. We moved in, um, there and about within a month or two time, my mother was addicted again to methamphetamine. 
uh, any type of methamphetamine she could get, but mainly ice. She was having people in and out of our house all the time, people that were drug addicts with her. She was running um, drugs in Arlington, selling drugs. Like she was picking up drug, all, everything that had Jesus. to do with methamphetamines, the, the ice problem that was going on at that point in time in DFW, which was, was, big which, problem, which yeah. was a big problem in Arlington and places like that. I think it still is. It my mother was, up, my mother was part of that. My mm-hmm. mother was, and she was, while she was doing that, she was also, um, robbing, a. Uh, robbing people at, at stores and stuff like that not right. robbing like convenience stores but taking someone's purse when they're not looking or right. you know like breaking into cars anything that they could to get money for these drugs and she would do the same thing that she did in, in back in Houston she would be gone for a week or so and then when my dad was coming to visit she'd make sure she was home but my mm-hmm. dad's not dumb he knew he could see the signs in her face, the way she, she her face got skinny, the everything, the sores that yeah. she would have on her arms. And, meth, and every, if you meth, don't know, yeah. it crystallized. They call it crystal because when it looks like crystal, but when you the you see people itch, it's crystallizing under their skin. Yes. And that's why you see sores on a person and why they're constantly doing the, the, yes. the I don't know, crack kind of a like Dave Chappelle itchy yes. thing. That's what that is. And my at the time, which Tim knows these two people, my two best friends friends jet kane and rob rob oldridge um they knew that Hi guys. I, they knew that i had something going on at home but what was so like i'll still like i get emotional when i think about it because they knew i was lying to them right because i didn't want to tell them what was going on and i would tell like robert's mom would be like okay i'm gonna drop you off at home and i didn't want her to see the shitty apartment that we lived in so I would tell her that my mother still worked for a company called RGIS, Regis, that mm-hmm. was doing uh, inventory and that she could drop me off at the Kroger. She oh, knew I was right. lying. She yeah. knew that, that she knew that I lived nearby and that I was lying to her. Right. Robert knew that I was lying. Jet knew that I was lying. But to their credit, they did everything they could to keep me away from that. Right. They kept me away from my mother's problems, which in turn... Created issues between me and my little sister, who you know I love dearly, my mm-hmm. sister Christina, because when that was going on, I was focused on doing theater, focused on being with my friends, focused on doing anything in my junior year to stay away from my mother and her problems. Right. And I had already like resigned to the fact that I'm giving up on them. Right. I'm giving up on my family. I'm going to create my own. I'm going to create right. my own life, my own family for myself. I'm going to basically, I'm going to put myself into Jet's family. I'm going to put myself into Rob's family. And those are my family. So right. they knew that I was lying. They knew what was going on. And we're approaching the end of, we're approaching the end of junior year. And so my dad, I, I go home one night because there's, I, I'm not going to stay at Jet's. I, I was like, man, I was at this guy's house for five days and I was at Rob's house before that. I'm not going to stay stay at their house anymore. I need to go home now. I need to check on my sister. When I get home, my room, or what used to be my room, because we had a two-bedroom apartment, my sister um, slept in the living room. My room was kind of become my sister's and my room. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for my sister, and there she is all huddled up crying in, in the room. And I just apologize. I lost it. I just bawled my eyes out just apologizing and saying, like, I have not been a good brother. I'm so sorry about this. Where's mom? She pointed to my mom's room, which my mom kept it locked. And if you've never smelt meth before, you'll know it when it, when you, if you've ever, if it ever. I'm that, pretty sure I have that, on 6th Street here and it smell it's just it's, smells like it's, garbage. It smells basically. like death. Death, death it and smells garbage like and death. poop. It like. smells like death. And I just had a moment of just aggression. My sister, I think, left the apartment. She was mad and, she, and very much so mad at me and I deserved it. But I grabbed a baseball bat and I broke my mother's door down and I just, she's screaming like, what are you, these are my friends. What are you doing? And I just remember seeing about six people in there. There was like three guys that, that were always nice to me, but I never wanted anything to do with them. Like they right. would talk to me and ask me about things and like, Oh, so you like uh, pro wrestling and Ric Flair and all. Oh yeah. You know, I remember. And I would just be like, I am not interested in a fucking word you have to say. <laughs> but I, when I broke that base, that door down with the baseball bat and I didn't break it, but I broke it open, broke the lock on it. I saw like my mother's, all of her clothes are just on the floor in this walk-in closet 
everything just on the floor. You, I, I don't know how people. Uh, she had friends that were sleeping in there on top of their clothes. Oh, Jesus, it was ridiculous. I woke everybody up with my with me being as loud as I was. I called my brother Sean, uh-huh. and who lived only a few blocks away. Oh yeah, that's right. He, and he kind of had an idea what was going on, but I called him. He called my my dad. And I told all these meth heads, I said, y'all have about 30 seconds to get out of my house, leave everything, or I'm calling the police and I'm telling them where every single one of you live because y'all all live in this apartment. I'm telling you, they all lived in that same apartment. Right. So that's how bad that apartment was. Mm-hmm. It was infested with meth heads. It was almost like cockroaches. Right. Okay. Yeah, even are. even one of her, my mother's best friends, who was this kind, like kind hearted little uh, gay guy. I was like, he's trying to talk to me. And I said, the next thing I'm doing is swinging this bat. So y'all all better leave every single one of you. Nobody's mm-hmm. talking me out of this. So that happens. It's a big blow up. My dad comes in that night. My sister's home. And my dad, you would think at this point in time for being such a math genius, for being such a smart person, that he would think of what's what the best thing to do. Okay, it's summertime. What does my dad decide? We're going to go back to Houston. We're going to take you and your sister and your mother, and we're going back to Houston because my dad still worked there, and he still had stuff going on there. And so that whole summer, Rob Aldridge says, uh, he always funny, uh, like very jokingly says, it was like the butterfly effect. You just disappeared. We all thought that you were a figment of our imagination, that you weren't real, (laughs) that you weren't even real because you were just gone for this whole summer. You didn't call. You didn't talk. And... I went back to Houston and I met up with old friends of mine, like um, friends like Megan, Taylor, Josh, Cody, Gilbert, all these people that I that I had known and left uh, a couple of years before that. And I was having fun. I was still just doing summer stuff like I wanted to do while my dad was trying to clean my mother up again. Right. And my sister and I both didn't want didn't really like my sister didn't mind staying in Houston. She wanted to go back to where most of her friends that she knew, because the only friends that she knew at this point in time were meth kids, kids that kids that whose parents were addicted addicted to drugs. And so she ends up, this summer is going on, and I say to myself, I can't stay here. I'm not staying in Houston. I love all my friends that I have, but I'm not going back to school here. It's nothing against them. I have stuff going on in DFW. I'm right. making something for myself. I'm trying to be become an actor, and I'm doing acting in, uh, in high school, and I want to go to college. I got all these plans. So I talked to my dad. I, f- I finally talked to my dad about it and said, I can't stay here. And he said, what do you mean you're my son? Of course you're going to be here. I said, no, I need to talk. I need to set something up for myself. So what did I do? I called Robert's mom, Rhonda, Mm -hmm. talked to her, talked to Rob, asked Rob, could you beg your parents to take me in? Let me be, let me live with you for my senior year, please. Just please let me live, live with you. And he convinced them. And I think they did it mainly because they loved me and mainly because they didn't want me to be involved in that. Right. And they, um, they took me in. My dad, uh, to his credit, got my mother clean. She's been clean ever since then. Right. Um, but my dad, my dad and my sister stayed in Houston while my dad uh, ended up uh, finishing up and retiring. And uh, they still had some issues every now and then, but no, no big relapses or anything like that right. with my mother. They just had money issues and flooding and stuff like they're going through right now. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad, their business got lost because of because of flooding in Texas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hurricane Ike did that to them. Oh, right, um, right, right. But I stayed in DFW, and I lived with Rob for that that year. My senior year had the best, one of the best years I've ever had. I still think his mother and father to this day for giving me such a great senior year and. And making and making me feel like what a real family is supposed to be like, and dealing and having his little brothers and sisters basically become my little brothers and sisters, and of course I resented my mother. I resented my mother. I resented my father. Mm-hmm. But I always worried about my sister, because uh, right. I loved her, and I always worried that I abandoned them. And there's still family members of mine, my uh, of my brothers mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, I'm not close with them that right. feel like that I don't want anything to do with, with them and, and all that. And it's really not that it's not the case. It's just that I have things going on yeah, family and drifts apart. family drifts apart, <clears throat> but I still talk to them now. And I think we're kind of getting closer back to a situation where I can go visit and we can make amends. But Rob's mother or Rob's, yeah, Rob's mother, Rhonda treated me like I was royalty. Like she treated right. me like I was her own son. 
And and that's like when and, and even whenever I was, you know, learning tough lessons that I had to learn myself about how to not spend your money. Uh, and Rhonda was just like, why is he not getting this? Why can't he get this? And Rhonda would call my grandmother and my grandmother would tell her. Because he's never had someone to teach him. He's going to have to learn on his own. Right. You've lived with me for years. You knew when I would spend money like crazy. You, you knew like $600 Italian shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, those, come on. Uh, that's, come on, those are rad. That's been since I've had money. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's been true. since I've been okay. But you, but I learned a lot of hard lessons. I, I had a falling out with Rob's parents over it, which mm-hmm. I think we're okay now. Right. Everything's okay now because I'm still, I don't speak to Rob very much. I don't see him very much, but I still love the guy. He still loves me. I still love his mother. I love his his uh, brothers and sisters and his father, and his and I lived uh, my freshman year of college. I was going to TCC. I lived with his nana. You know, mm-hmm. lived with his nana, and I g- created a great relationship with her before she passed away. Oh, right. um, yeah. But I, I have always like I had to learn so many lessons, guys, about because dealing in a drug family, I had to learn to not be a liar. Mm-hmm. Lying was a big part of my life. Lying about so many things. Right. Rob told me one time to my face made me cry. He said, when you say the phrase, the thing is, you're lying. And I know you are. And now I still use that phrase today, but I don't use I'm it. I'm definitely going to notice that no, now. <laughs> no, but I, I know. I still use I gotcha. that phrase today, <laughs> but I don't use it in the same right, right, right. frame of mm-hmm. reference, you know? And I, and I think about that sometimes when I, when I do say that during football podcasts, like right. the thing is about, and I'm like, man, Rob, <laughs> Rob. <laughs> well, and, but, I promise on that show, we're telling the truth. Always. Yeah. So <laughs> this is, uh, you know, by having, by going through this drug, <clears throat> drug issue with my family, it had an effect on me that made me keep my guards up, made me lie to people that I loved, like Rob and my best friends, made me like they and, and you know what? God love them because they still love me. They mm-hmm. still stuck with me. You still stuck. Everyone right. has stuck with me over all this. They've seen me become a better person because I'm not saying that I had the issues that my mother had. No, no, no not no, no. that. But I didn't have any type of parental guidance and I would like Rob's mom wanting to be my mother, I would have like, I would fight with myself inside. Cause I would say part of me, like I just want to be an Oldridge and not be a Sizemore. Right. But that is my mother. Mm-hmm. That's the one that gave birth it's to flesh me. Flesh and blood, man. And that is my father and they're not perfect, but they're mine. And that is my little sister. And I can't turn my back on her. And I think that everything that I've dealt with, and all the bad decisions that I've made over the years and all the lies that I've told that I've had to, that I've been caught in, that I've had to fix my relationships with people, I think that manifested itself in, I don't have any kids, I'm 29 years old, but my sister going through her situations that she's gone through, I've all, that's why I've always been there for her. Right. That's why we've taken her in six times whenever she's had like financial issues or lost a job mm-hmm. or something. That's why we've done what we've done because in so many ways I tell I told this to my mother I said in so many ways she's not your daughter she's my daughter right she's my responsibility right. um but my mother's been clean ever since our relationship is great my 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 relationship with my father is great and obviously my relationship with my little sister is phenomenal my little sister lives in Austin because she wants to be close to Tim and I right um but she thinks of Tim like a brother I've come through the other side of mm-hmm. this. And like I said, those negative effects had negative effects on me and made me have to become a better person. Right. I've gotten through all of that. Right. I've and the worst part is <coughs> that a lot of people don't. And a lot of people don't come like you came out. Tina came out. You know, your mom came out. Your dad came out the other side. You know, some people OD. Some people Straight up don't. And it's because there's a lot of issues with lack of um, mental health help. They just throw people in jail, bunch them all together and let, you know, in their sense, let God sort them out. And that's not the way to do it. They have clinics that, that people can get help, but they cost money. It is there's no point of having and is it's not a good thing to say, but drains on society in a sense when they there's ways of helping every single person. When the war on drugs started, they had 
put out all this different propaganda. They had made a movie called Reefer Madness, which is a great, funny musical now. But back in the day, it was a video that they had put out saying that marijuana made you rape and steal and date jazz musicians or whatever the fuck their terrible excuse was. And then I'm going to leave you on this. Well, hold, for, hold, before oh. you do that, I do have a little, a few more things to say. I, I know that you've gotten you've got my story today mm-hmm. and you've and you've heard my story and some of you might say well my gosh it sounds like you know drugs are like drugs can rip people apart of course they can if you have if you have addictions and you need help you need it's hard to seek that help and i tell people that if you know people that have addictions you have to be the person that yes, helps amen. them Absolutely. because and you know what you have to do what my my dad told my dad told me this a few years ago when i asked him how he stuck with my mother mm-hmm. through all of this how he's with her today my dad said you know son when i met your mother she was 16 years old we got together when she was 17 and i was in my 40s he's like i told myself long ago you're stealing this girl's youth you're taking it away from her because you're older and you don't want to party like that as much. And my dad partied a little bit, but right. you don't want to do what she wants to do. You're taking her youth and one day it's going to come back and bite you. You need to show that you're man enough to handle that. And that's why my dad stuck with my mother. That's why they're still together. But I want people to know that when it comes to the war on drugs, when it comes to these these things, a lot of these things have been manufactured by some of your officials, some of your government yep. officials have brought things into this world, uh, brought things into this this country, have let things happen. But it comes down to if you have an addiction, it doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It just means that you have an addiction, you have this disease that you need to rid yourself of, but you can't do it alone. You need people to help you. My mother wouldn't have got through all of this if she didn't have the thought in her mind that, hey, when it came down to it, after feeling like he didn't for so long, my dad obviously loved her to stick with her, put her through help. She had kids that she wanted to get better for. She wants she wanted to live. She didn't want to die on a on a sweaty mattress when she has a daughter and son who can one day have grandkids for her or could is something like that. She didn't want to sit there. This war on drugs has become an epidemic because you have you have this that you have your government kind of putting all of this all of this stuff out there that's negativity about that while they're also behind your back being the person that hands you everything that you're going yep. to get into. I'm not saying drugs are bad, kids, and that you can't you that you, any drug you do is going to be bad. It just depends on how you are created. If you have an addiction problems, if you if you know that you have an addiction problem, yeah, you probably you, you definitely need to stay away from 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 exactly. things because that's when things become gateway drugs because mm-hmm. you will go you will need that high to get bigger and bigger and bigger until you're found, you know, with a needle in your arm and you're not breathing anymore. Exactly. And in places like Portugal, uh, also look at the movie um, Where to Invade Next. They touch on this a little bit. But Portugal, they do exactly what we need to be doing by getting people mental health. They cops said there in the interview, why would we not want to teach people and treat people with dignity versus putting them in? I mean, most of our prisons are privatized and they're shitty. Why do people do drugs? Because it makes them feel because good. Makes why do they want good. to feel good? Because they feel bad. Yeah. So you make them treat them with dignity, make them stop feeling bad and give them the help that they want then they probably won't be doing these terrible drugs anymore. On top of the fact that this war on drugs that we've created to put everybody in jail was started on a lie, because I'm going to leave you with this. John Ehrlichman, he was one of the people, he served 18 months for helping Nixon and Watergate. He said this afterwards. You want to know what this, sorry, you want to know what this was really about? He asked with a businessman of whom, after public disgrace and sketch in a federal prison, had little, uh, had little, little left to protect Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon white house after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we could make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We would arrest their leaders, 
raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them after night, night after night on the evening news. Did we know that we were lying about the war on drugs? Of course we did. Mm. They knew. Your government knows now. Our current attorney general knows now. Our president knows now. Mm -hmm. They know it's horseshit. We do not need to be putting people in jail anymore. So call your senators. Call, do whatever you need to do because 25 states didn't just fucking legalize marijuana because what, all the crazy potheads wanted to get high? And think about like what I was trying, my message that I was trying to get across to you guys towards the end there of of my story was to let you know that you, drugs, having somebody be, just by having my mother have relapses and being addicted to drugs, it it ruined portions of my life, and it also turned me, I had to become a good person. Like, I was a bad person because I was lied to, betrayed, and I decided to do that to other people exactly. that really cared and loved me. And that's, that's where I'm coming from here, just to say that, you know, I'm still not done, you know, apologizing. I still have problems, you know, talk, uh, confronting issues on, on the same lines of like, how come you haven't called me in three years? Right. I thought we were friends. What's going on? I still have those issues. I still have things. Right. It, it's, I, but I had to learn that, you know, drugs, having drugs, you know, brought into your life doesn't only just destroy the person that is that is there doing the drugs it destroys the people that are closest to them exactly there's not just the victims that are sitting in the jails there are victims it's families and everybody else that they care about so we're going to leave it there um thank you all for listening once again i want to thank michael sizemore from bruising the boys um, on waffle butt media you can follow michael at at mr sizemore that's m-r S-I-S-E-M-O-R-E and Bruising the Boys at at Bruising the Boys. Listen to that podcast every Tuesday or watch it right after every Cowboys game, um, right after the game on Facebook Live. You can also follow America the Podcast at A-T-P-W-B-M and The Bastard at at Bastard Comedy and Wafflebutt Media at Wafflebutt Media. And for more shows, please visit wafflebuttmedia.com and all the Bastard's messages are on bastardvideos.americathepodcast.com. Please remember to call your senators. Please remember to keep fighting the good fight. And as always, America, as as hard as you can. Good night, everybody. It's America, the podcast.